Hello and welcome to the BICOM podcast. I'm Samuel Nerding, BICOM's research associate. It's Wednesday the 18th of May and I'm delighted to be joined by our guest for today, Yakov Lapin. Yakov is an Israeli-based military and strategic affairs analyst. Uh, Yakov is also a research associate at the Miriam Institute. He writes at JNS and is also affiliated to the Alma Research and Education Center. Yakov, it's great to have you back on the Bicom podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Let's start with what has been a relatively difficult week for, for Israel and its security forces. Um, we won't get into obviously what happened last week. Most of our listeners will, will know. But it'd be good, mm-hmm. Yakov, to get your um, thoughts on, on what you made of the funeral last week and also the, the police kind of justification for the way it handled the procession in Jerusalem. Well, I think um, what began is clearly a very charged event um, in, in that funeral procession. Um, from the beginning, from the get-go, there were disagreements between the funeral organizers and the Israel police over whether the funeral should be uh, on foot, should proceed to the cemetery on foot or by car. The police asked for by car over what kind of chants can and cannot be chanted. There was a whole host of issues that were already um, you know, creating a, a divisive and, and problematic atmosphere. But what happened during the actual funeral um, uh, was two things. The first, uh, there were a number of rioters who, who literally were hiding under the coffin after throwing rocks and, and various projectiles at the police. Um, and the second was um, what it seems to me to have been um, uh, far from ideal police planning in the sense of anticipating that situation um, and figuring out ways to contain uh, that incident without falling into what I would call a media trap, a very clear media trap. Um, and I think that police have, um, by the fact that they've announced an investigation, they've recognized uh, that there was more uh, uh, space for prior planning, prior simulation, and finding a balance, really, between the need, yes, to enforce the law and to enforce uh, Israeli sovereignty, and, and on the other hand, not falling um, so quickly into what turned out to be a, a, a pretty a negative media trap for, for the Israel police. You mentioned that finding a balance, and it was interesting because particularly here in, in the UK, and I was looking also on the media screen, and I was I was just thinking, I was con- contrasting the scenes from last Friday to the scenes over kind of Temple Mount during Ramadan, where the police did show a certain kind of level-headedness in terms of what was happening there, given what happened last year. Um, I mean, you know, you saw Hamas wave, Hamas flags being waved on the Temple Mount. You heard lots of chanting and praises of Hamas's military wing. Yet, for some reason, Palestinian flags at a funeral seem to be too much for the Palestinian, for the Jerusalem police. So why do you think the police didn't show the same kind of restraint at the funeral that, that it had done during Ramadan, particularly on the Temple Mount? Right. Well, I think that the fact uh, that um, rocks and, and various uh, projectiles were being hurled um, mm-hmm. at that incident, and, and there was this attempt to take uh, the coffin on a, on a procession by foot, I think the police were, were concerned that this would turn into a major disturbance and that it would happen outside of the area that they can control quite well these days, which is the Temple Mount. This is a different area. This is East Jerusalem and it's a procession. So it could really snowball into a much bigger event that they would find much harder to control. So I think they were pretty intent on stopping that. 
um, and getting the organizers a to um, you know communicate with others who were there to stop you know uh, throwing those 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 rocks and objects, and also to get them to move it by by car. But I, I agree with the premise of your question in that it seems from the police's actions that there was more thorough. Uh, prior planning and simulation and thinking that went into how to deal with Ramadan and the Temple Mount versus this funeral. It mm. seems to me that the funeral uh, uh, reaction was the response of of, uh, of a police policy that did not have a lot of uh, force forethought that uh, went into the planning. And I think that that is really the result of, you know, when an organization, and we, we also have to note here that the Israel police is really stretched to the limit these days, you know, in addition to all of the classic policing missions that it has to do, you know, crime fighting and traffic and all of the things that an ordinary police force does in a Western country. It also has to deal with uh, clashes, disturbances and, and a wave of terrorism. So we, we have to understand that the police is really stretched to the limit. Um, but having said that, yes, I, it seems that a lot more uh, uh, prior planning and thinking went into uh, the Temple Mount policy as opposed to how police responded to this to this incident, to this funeral procession. It, it became, I'm talking about last week's events and obviously the death of the Al Jazeera journalist. It, it became very mm -hmm. clear quickly that the Arab media and public opinion in the Middle East blamed the IDF for the death. Um, Israel was, was quick to put out a different narrative that challenged Al Jazeera's version of events. Um, something which has become more regular, I suppose, for the IDF over the last decade is this idea of battle of narratives that, that happens on social media and in media during as well as after escalations. What does kind of this battle of narratives tell us, you think, about the use of social media in the kind of modern warfare? And do, do you think Israel and the IDF is sufficiently prepared to, to win this battle? I think that um, there's a recognition, first of all, that whenever these kinds of online battles, if we can call them that, uh, mm -hmm. break out, um, Israel and the IDF are always going to be at a disadvantage. They're always going, it's, it's a structural uh, disadvantage in the sense that A, they are perceived in the world as being the stronger party. And as a result, there's an automatic, and I would add a false assumption that the stronger party is always in the wrong, always has to uh, be presumed to be guilty before proven innocent, and a, a whole host of assumptions um, that are also reinforced by visual uh, media uh, that always uh, show, you know, well-organized military dealing with, with a non-military uh, uh, entity uh, or, or, or multiple rioters. So the whole system is really designed uh, to um, present the IDF as the aggressor and Israel as the aggressor. Now, if you add to that uh, the fact that um, the uh, ability of Israel and the IDF to respond to online claims, to respond to you know what I would call the, the pace of social media, which is instant, which is in seconds, mm. that's another structural disadvantage because they obviously want to clarify the facts before putting out a response, right? Yeah. Um, and it's much easier to throw around a charge, um, and especially if it's unsubstantiated, than for a state system, you know, to complete its investigation and to present the results of investigation, and especially when uh, the results are inconclusive, as they are in this case. Um, you know, who, who fired the bullet? It's still unknown. It's still unclear. Um, so these are major structural uh, disadvantages that Israel will always face. And I think what we saw 
uh, in this incident was really the Israeli foreign ministry and, and, and the public diplomacy system that had been put into place by this government try to speed up its response. I think that's what, what it was trying to do. And, you know, it's always a balance. There's always a risk when you do that. When you speed up your response, you know, the faster you go, the, the more you might get wrong. So there's, there's a real management of risks here between A, not letting a narrative, which is false, uh, you know, spread around the world at the speed of light. On the other hand, you know, how fast do you want to go as a state, as a military, as a foreign ministry, um, and before you start getting into an area that could be problematic in terms of the facts? And it's a very difficult dilemma. I really empathize with the decision makers who have to make these calls. Um, and, you know, I think that this structural disadvantage will always remain, uh, really, no matter what Israel does. I think, uh, unfortunately, it's, it's really the kind of thing that will always uh, be a problem uh, for the state of Israel uh, because of all the factors that I just described. Absolutely. Uh, perhaps we can put last week's events into, into a wider focus. Um, it yep. began with an idea of military operation into Jenin. Um, can you kind of explain to some of our listeners why the IDF is concentrating its forces there? What makes Jenin so dangerous for, for the IDF and, and for Israel? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the first thing I think we should say is that, you know, over the past five weeks or so, Israel has been the target of a murderous wave of, of Palestinian terrorism, uh, which has claimed the lives of 19 people so far and multiple attacks. Now, many of the worst attacks that have happened in, in recent weeks have come out of Jenin. You know, just to give you a few examples, the Bnei Brak shooting uh, on March 28th, uh, the gunman came from Jenin, uh, the April 7th uh, attack at a Tel Aviv bar, uh, the gunman came from the Janine area, and then there was this uh, horrific May 5th uh, axe rampage through El Ad by a uh, two-man terror cell who also came from the Janine area. So, so Janine is emerging as a hotbed of terrorism. We can talk a little bit later, if you like, about the kind of terrorism this is, because it's very different from the kind of terrorism that we saw during the Second Intifada. These are not well-organized cells. These are not uh, cells that have large organizations behind them. It's not that Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad are not trying to uh, you know, produce uh, murderous terrorism. They are trying, um, but they're being uh, largely repressed. And so what's left are these unorganized cells, these lone wolfers and these small cells that are acting on their own um, based on the incitement that they're exposed to. Uh, based on this uh, fiction that the Al-Aqsa Mosque is in some kind of uh, mortal danger. Um, and this kind of religious incitement basically motivates them to go out and, and conduct these attacks. Mm -hmm. So what, what we have is Janine emerging as a real hotbed uh, with more than 50% of uh, intelligence alerts that the IDF is receiving regarding terror plots that are in, in the middle of the formation stage originating from the Janine area. And it's for that reason uh, that the IDF has focused many of its recent counter-terrorist operations. These are preventative operations where, you know, intelligence comes in about these plots um, and infantry soldiers, often uh, accompanied by elite forces, will act on that intelligence and move into capture to arrest uh, these suspected terrorists. And Janine has also emerged as a, as a very lawless uh, zone in the West Bank, especially the Janine refugee camp. It's a place that the Palestinian Authority itself struggles to enter. Um, so we have large numbers of weapons uh, floating around and gunmen. Some of them are affiliated with organizations, others are not. 
Um, it's messy, it's chaotic, and a lot of these operations um, turn into large-scale gunfights. Um, and that's exactly the kind of uh, uh, context uh, that we have that led uh, to um, the tragic death um, uh, of the journalist from Al Jazeera. So, so that is the the the, uh, the role that Janine has has been playing in in the past few months. Fascinating. Thanks for that. Perhaps we can zoom out even further. And over the last five to six weeks, there's been, or there was, a legitimate concern in Israel and perhaps in the wider region about a potential for a new escalation in Gaza during Ramadan. You mentioned there about lots of incitement coming out of Gaza, um, and especially <laughs> after witnessing violent clashes on the Temple Mount most mornings during Ramadan. Yet, barring a few rockets, we didn't really see anything like what, what we saw last year. Why do you think that was? What kind of factors made it so that it was quiet compared to, compared to May 2021? So I think the main factor um, that we should put on the table is that simply Hamas does not want an escalation, a direct escalation at this time from Gaza. Um, and the reason for that is because um, on the military front, Hamas is rebuilding its military capabilities in the Gaza Strip following last year's escalation um, with Israel, and it sustained uh, considerable damage. Um, Hamas is also aware of the fact that there is little appetite amongst Gazan civilians, the two million civilians that live under Hamas's regime, uh, for a new war with Israel. Um, and they're aware of that, and they're taking that into account. You know, Hamas has a very radical ideology, um, which is ultimately committed to Israel's destruction. And up until then, you know, con fighting continuous rounds, it, it has fought four wars with Israel. So it's not that Hamas has changed its ideology. Um, it's more that Hamas is constantly juggling uh, between its role as an ideological uh, Islamist terrorist organization that's committed to armed conflict and its role as, as a government, you know, as a regime. And um, this juggling act, um, which I think Hamas has never really resolved, it's just, it's just moving in between both of these duties, both, both of these hats, um, has caused it to reach the conclusion that now it is not in its interest uh, to enter into a direct escalation with Israel. And as a result of that decision, which I think has been made by uh, Yehi Sinwar, the head of Hamas in Gaza, mm -hmm. um, what we're seeing is Hamas trying to export the conflict to areas that would be far more comfortable for it, which is uh, East Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, and the West Bank. Um, and particularly, I think, in the West Bank, where uh, Hamas's rival the Palestinian Authority rules, uh, the more violence that Hamas can create and, and, and act as a catalyst for, the less stable its rival, the Palestinian Authority, will be. So Hamas is really trying to kill two birds with one stone here, um, uh, continue its, its radical ideology, but doing so further away from Gaza and weakening its rival in the process. And I think that's really the policy that we're seeing Hamas pursue uh, during this month and, and the month before that. And how much do you put the quiet on the Gaza border down to the Israeli government and its policies that it's 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 kept, I suppose, for the last 11 months in terms of its economic policies on on the border? I, Israel's you know ability to influence Hamas Hamas's decision making is is, is certainly there, um, but it's really an internal question of how much of of what Hamas does as a result of, of Israel's uh, actions and policies, mm. and how much of this is down to its own calculations of what its interests are. And the reason I think we should be cautious before attributing Hamas's decisions to Israeli actions is because 
you know, prior to last year's escalation and the Operation uh, Guardian of the Walls, there was widespread uh, assessment that Hamas was deterred and that it was not interested in an escalation. And then it went ahead and fired, uh, you know, I think it was five or six rockets at Jerusalem and, and other rockets at the south. And, and it really stunned a lot of people. Um, and, and some of these people are people who know Hamas very well, and they were still surprised. And I think, therefore, we need to be modest about our uh, assessments on what influences Hamas's decision making. I think ultimately Hamas does what it feels is most in line with its ideology and its interests at any given time. And of course, it does take into account uh, the fact that Israel's overwhelming firepower and intelligence capabilities can seriously harm it. But it's also aware of other things like the fact that, you know, Israel's government is really sort of hanging on by a thread. It's not a very stable government. It's not clear that it could survive a war at this time, the government, I'm, I'm saying. Um, and it's aware that, you know, it has long term considerations that don't always call for Gaza and this experiment that it has launched in Gaza, um, uh, sorry, Hamas and this experiment that is launched in Gaza, this governing experiment to always be on the front line uh, with Israel. So it has a host of these calculations. It's juggling identities as, as, a, as an armed you know, organization and a government. And all of these things mean that I think Hamas um, is happy to take a break once in a while from direct confrontations. And uh, what Israel is trying to do is, yes, Israel is trying to create further incentives for Hamas to hold its fire. So there is the deterrence factor, which is always there. And then there is the uh, economic factor. And what we're seeing is Israel allowing more and more Gazans uh, to enter Israel into work. I believe the current uh, cap for that uh, work entry uh, permit system is, is 20,000 Gazans. And that's the most it's been for a very long time. And that is an indication of, of this attempt by Israel to give uh, uh, Hamas a carrot for holding its fire by enabling its people to experience some economic stability and also the ability to take away that you know, uh, carrot and replace it with a stick if, if the need comes. Um, but it's really too soon to know how successful uh, this Israel, Israeli approach will be for influencing uh, Hamas's conduct. I'm personally... Uh, not very hopeful, I have to say, unfortunately. And I, I think Hamas has already demonstrated that it's able to, you know, escalate when it feels that that would serve its purposes and its ideology and its and its political interests. Very interesting. Perhaps we can we can move on to um, Syria. And there was uh, it was reported last week that Israel conducted a kind of larger than I suppose usual attack on an underground facility in, in Masyaf in, in, in Syria. Can you tell us a little bit more yes. about, about that attack? Uh, yeah, well, we're going on foreign uh, and international uh, sources right. here um, because the IDF does not comment on these kinds of attacks. We know that Masyaf is is the scene of, of some interesting facilities. One of them is um, the uh, Syrian Research and Scientific Institute. It's known by its French acronym, CERS, um, C-E-R-S. And, and that is a facility that has played a very important role um, in the production of precision-guided missiles, which Syria and Iran have both produced at that site in the past, and they have used um, precision guidance systems that they've uh, produced at that site 
and smuggled them to Hezbollah in Lebanon. So this is a site that's been involved with some very problematic weapons production, advanced weapons production that violate uh, Israeli red lines about what uh, can and cannot proliferate in the region to Israel's adversaries. Um, so it, it could be a reasonable assumption to believe um, that intelligence was received about the production of, of precision missiles. That's one possibility. We, of course, don't know. Um, and uh, following the reports of the airstrike, you know, we received some mixed and, um, and interesting reports about the firing of an S-300 uh, surface-to-air missile battery uh, from a Syrian base located in that area um, at, at Israeli Air Force jets. Now, we don't know if those are the missiles that really went up at Israeli jets because there's another uh, air defense system at, in that side called the Pansir. This is a Russian-made system. It's in the control of the Syrian air defense um, personnel. And we don't really know which, which system fired. You know, no, nobody really seems to, to be 100% on that. So I always take these reports with, with, uh, with a pinch of salt. Um, but what we do know is that, you know, it looks like there was an attack there. It looks like air defense systems went to work. And there are reports, especially from the um, Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, which is a London-based war monitor, that uh, four members of Syrian air defense personnel were killed um, in, in Israeli fire. And if that's true, that would mean that there was um, waves of attacks, not that they, they wouldn't have been killed on the first strike, because the first strike very likely targeted weapon systems. Um, and then if, if a surface-to-air missile uh, system was activated against Israeli jets, um, it seems reasonable to believe that Israel responded to that by destroying you know, the personnel that were involved in, 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 in that uh, attempted attack on Israeli Air Force jets. So that seems to be, you know, what what happened uh, in Syria on Friday. Yeah, you mentioned also that the S three hundreds, and it, it would be quite a um, quite a development if that was the case. And and it's I suppose yes. there's been a lot of talk in Israel and also outside and in the Middle East in, in general about the how the invasion of Ukraine has has changed, but has Russia's interests and even ability to to carry out its its um, military operations in, in the Middle East. Have you noticed or have, do you think it's changed Russia's interests to maybe, or even ability to put a check on Iranian activity in Syria? Is this what Israel's concerned about? Well, I think that, you know, when we're talking about interests and the interests of states, mm. um, I don't think those change so quickly. So, you know, I think that Russia has an interest in limiting and, and possibly rolling back uh, Iran's presence and entrenchment efforts in Syria, because those directly compete with and undermine Russia's own interests in Syria. You know, Russia wants to use Syria as a springboard for its power projection, um, as it has done in the past in the 20th century, you know, as the Soviet Union. Um, it's certainly interested in returning to the Middle East as, as, as a superpower and presenting itself as, as a loyal ally that will take care of its patrons. And it wants really a, a stable Syria in order to, to, to do that. Um, and Iran has entirely different intentions. So, you know, they were able to cooperate together, Russia and Iran, during the Syrian civil war to, to save the Assad regime. But now that the war is largely over, there's definitely competition uh, between um, these two uh, uh, players in Syria. And, you know, the Iranians have completely different intentions. They want to essentially take over Syria and build a second Hezbollah there and, and turn it into an essential component of, of, of the radical Iranian Shiite axis that they're trying to build throughout the Middle East. 
So there's a clash of interests, and I don't think that that's changing. So Israel and Russia do have a shared interest um, in keeping the Iranians in check, keeping them repressed in Syria. Uh, having said that, uh, unfortunately, as always in this region, you know, there's uh, another side to the story and, and there's a complication. And here, the complication is that even though Israel and Russia have a shared interest, that doesn't guarantee that they're going to get along. Mm. Because on the one hand, uh, Russia uh, is interested in a quiet Syria, and it is certainly not interested in seeing uh, Israeli airstrikes, you know, uh, slam into targets in Syria on a weekly basis. Um, the fact that Iran uses Syrian military bases quite often for its activities means that those bases can become targets. And that already starts to infringe on the Russian interest of, of maintaining and safeguarding the Assad regime. So uh, I think, you know, Russia has a, a range of ways. And, and there have been some very interesting research reports that came out of the Alma Institute on this recently. Russia has ways of signaling its displeasure uh, to Israel when it feels that Israel is exaggerating. Um, if you want, you know, we can talk about what those signals are, but just in a nutshell, you know, uh, those have included in the past intelligence leaks, information about Israeli air activity, um, and transferring the S-300 batteries uh, to Syria, um, something that, you know, was clearly not an Israeli interest for the Assad regime to receive those, those advanced batteries, and it's something that, you know, has forced the Israeli Air Force to change the way it operates over Syria, it creates another challenge. So there's a whole, you know, tension, an ongoing tension that exists between Israel and Russia um, over this over this issue. So, you know, having said all of that, I don't think the interests have changed, um, and I don't think that uh, Russia is going to leave the Syrian arena anytime soon. Even though it's struggling in Ukraine and it has, you know, uh, such a huge international and global crisis that it has created in Ukraine, I don't think. Any of those things will cause uh, Russia to walk away from Syria or just to hand it over uh, to the Iranians. Very, very interesting. Perhaps we can just move on quickly. Two more topics. Yep. Um, number one, mm -hmm. the JCPOA. Obviously, it's talks have have stalled, um, have kind of end uh, war well, stalemate in, in Vienna, and the EU is attempting to to break um, the stalemate. I suppose with its sending its its ambassador to Iran. Um, the chances, obviously, of the deal happening seem to be appearing smaller by the day. I wonder if, if you can perhaps explain Israel's position right now as it is on the JCPOA and, and how Israel's position and policy, does it change if the deal is reinstated or not? Yeah, well, I think that in terms of Israel's position, I think the first thing you know that we can say is that for Israel, the status quo right now is actually the worst scenario because what's hap what's happening now is that uh, the Iranians are making rapid and alarming progress on their nuclear program, especially when it comes to uranium enrichment uh, and especially when it comes to developing and producing uh, advanced uranium centrifuges, uh, uranium enrichment centrifuges that are designed to uh, enrich uranium faster and faster. And what we had was a revelation yesterday by uh, Defense Minister Benny Gantz, who said that uh, the Iranians have um, so far stockpiled um, 60 kilograms of uranium enriched to the 60% level, which is very high. Um, and they are weeks away, uh, according to multiple reports, from having enough uranium uh, for a first atomic bomb. And I'll just quickly add, because you know that statement can throw a lot of people off, that doesn't mean that Iran is weeks away from 
having a full nuclear bomb. It means that they have enough uranium in a few weeks for a bomb, but they still have to complete a host of other processes to actually build a bomb, such as the ability to miniaturize uh, the warhead, figure out how to put it on a missile, uh, etc. So all of these things mean that Iran is at least a year and a half, possibly two years away from actually having a bomb. But the uranium enrichment process is the most difficult part of building an atomic bomb. And the Iranians are pretty much there in terms of mastering that, that uh, sector. Um, and what's happening is that they're just making more and more progress, right? And the fact that, you know, it, uh, they, they're making this progress as, as bargaining chips to get a better deal, which was their original intention, I believe, it doesn't matter um, if that was their intention, because the longer the stalemate goes on, the more tempting it could be for the Iranians to say, look, you know, we've come so close, you know, we might as well just forego the deal. Uh, if the deal is not realistic for us, mm -hmm. they might, you know, be tempted to go for a breakthrough. And I think this is what's alarming Israel. This is what's disturbing Israel. So the status quo um, in which the Iranians are simply moving ahead, there's no diplomatic arrangement that's, you know, moving forward is the worst. Um, and if, if things continue this way, I don't, I'm not talking about tomorrow or next week, but you know, I think that you know, within within this year or so, the chances of an Israeli attack on the Iranian nuclear program would go up dramatically if nothing changes. Um, and I think Israel is trying very hard to send that message to everybody, uh, to its friends and its foes alike, and, and to try and, and and send the message that it's actually serious about enforcing you know its red lines on on the Iranian nuclear program. Um, and regarding the JCPOA that's on the table. Um, from everything that I've been able to gather, you know, the Israeli defense establishment does not think that this is a good deal. Um, the worst part of this deal is the fact that uh, it has sunset clauses that would expire uh, fairly soon in, 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 you know, a number of years that at the end of these sunset clauses, Iran would be on track uh, to enriching in as much uranium as it wants and, and becoming, an, you know, a, a nuclear breakout state um, with full international legitimacy. So, uh, you know, I don't think Israel is, is a huge fan of this deal, um, but, you know, it also understands that there are limits to what it can do in terms of influencing U.S. policy. Um, and I think it, you know, recognizes the fact that it has to work around, you know, the fact that it, U.S. is going to pursue its own interests. And if the U.S. has decided to, uh, you know, orient itself towards China, towards Russia and great power competition, um, the thing that's left for Israel to do is to build this regional coalition um, with moderate Sunni states that are, you know, as threatened by Iran as Israel is, and to try and contain the Iranians and deter them from breaking out and to create a military option in case they do break out. So I think that's where we are right now. Uh, Israel would certainly like to see from the United States a plan B um, mm. for what would happen if the JCPOA falls through in, in, in a final manner. Uh, we're not there yet. We could be there yet. Uh, we could be there soon. Sorry, um, but we're not there yet. But I think the United the United States is is receiving requests from Israel, uh, you know, telling it, you know, what happens if this doesn't work and the Iranians keep enriching uranium? You know, what what what's the plan here? And I think that's the most urgent, you know, topic on the table between these two countries right now. Absolutely. Um, thanks for that. But perhaps we can end with obviously Lebanon, and it's just had its national elections on Sunday and it yes. appears that the, the pro-Hezbollah bloc uh, and its allies have lost their majority in the parliament and more independents have had one seat than before. I, I know it, it's quite early to judge but, but do you think this could have any impact on Hezbollah's standing inside Lebanon? 
I think, you know, when we're looking at Hezbollah standing in Lebanon, um, the fact that Hezbollah is not actually dependent on the Lebanese state, um, and this is actually a topic that the Alma Center has uh, researched extensively in the past couple of years, and I would encourage listeners to uh, look up some of those reports. Hezbollah's ability to provide the things that a state usually provides for its base, for its Shiite base, particularly in southern Lebanon, you know, whether we're talking about medical coverage or fuel or food uh, or employment or construction uh, or electricity, these are all things that Hezbollah, with, you know, Iranian help, is able to provide independently for its base. And so even if politically Hezbollah's uh, block uh, has suffered, and it looks like, um, you know, from the results that I saw, uh, Hezbollah's allies are the ones who who really um, did not do well here. It's Christian and Druze allies, um, you know, lost votes to rivals, especially I think, you know, the uh, the Hezbollah allied party by uh, run by Aoun, by the Lebanese president, um, lost seats to uh, the anti-Hezbollah Lebanese forces. Um, so certainly there is a statement here, I think, from the Lebanese political system um, that's really an expression of thirst for, for, for new ideas, for, for, for moving away from, you know, this um, multiple crisis um, that has continued to paralyze Lebanon as a state, paralyze it, you know, economically, politically, from a security perspective. You know, uh, it seems that the Lebanese people are, are, are just desperate uh, to move away from that. But I don't think that this will have a huge influence on Hezbollah because while Hezbollah would certainly like to, you know, dominate Hezbollah, uh, Lebanon's political system, um, even if it's not able to do that to the extent that it wishes, I don't think that that threatens Hezbollah's ability to dominate Lebanon militarily, strategically, and to care for its base. Um, and I think that those are the most important things uh, for Hezbollah. Yaakov, um, we've run out of time, but thank you so much for sharing your expert thoughts. And I'd like to just to echo that our readers should definitely check out your writings on, on security issues, which I think are excellent. Um, thank you um, very much. But for now, Yaakov, thank you so much for, for that uh, interview. Thank you. My pleasure.